Welcome to Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Robin Muncie, professor of history at the University of Maryland. She has written extensively on the intersections of class, gender, and reform in the United States. Her current research focuses on the history of the term working class in U.S. political culture. Robin Muncie, welcome to Working History. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Everyone is quote unquote middle class is one of the old adages that used to be trotted out quite frequently when discussing class in the United States. And this was a nod to the assumption of many that the United States was, if not a classless society, then at least an overwhelmingly middle class country. And so could you start us off by briefly explaining why this was so? Sure. Uh, The notion that the U.S. was classless began very early on when the United States was founded with no hereditary nobility. Mm -hmm. And so it was considered a much more open and socially mobile society than European societies were. And that was considered to be one of the hallmarks of American identity, in fact. Mm -hmm. That same notion then of classlessness um, uh, continues into the post-World War II period, but it's often... Um, the, the language used to talk about that or to, to claim that the U.S. was classless was simply to say that the whole U.S. was middle class. Everybody's mm-hmm. part of the same class. Mm-hmm. And so to deny class division. And the, this longstanding commitment to the U.S. as a classless society got an extra um, uh, oomph in the, in the post-World War II period because um, in the context of the Cold War um, – it was became important to deny that the U.S. had a working class in particular or any class divisions because that was also a way of denying uh, the truth of a communist view of of history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, to, so it seemed important, another way of distinguishing the U.S. from communism itself and to deny the 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 um, any truth to communism, which was at that point, of course, the great enemy uh, and threat to American democracy. Okay. So generally speaking, then, to what extent has the term working class figured into mainstream politics since um, the the 1930s? And, you know, and maybe backtracking a little bit, what do you mean by mainstream politics in in this context? Right. At this moment, what I mean when I'm talking about mainstream politics um, are politics that are represented in and participated in by the mainstream print media. So I'm looking right now, I'll talk to you a little bit more about this later, but I'm looking at the New York Times and Mm -hmm. um, because of mass circulated print media and the ways that they represent um, um, American politics and especially electoral politics. So it's a, um, the the kind of broadest uh, vision of a conversation about politics. Mm -hmm. And so the way that working class has figured in, um, mainstream political conversations since the 1930s is that the the term working class was used fairly commonly in the 1930s. Then it drops out of use almost entirely in reference to the U.S. in Mm -hmm. the late 40s and through the 1950s. Mm -hmm. It begins to kind of edge its way back into conversations in the 1960s. And then, oh, Beth, it skyrockets. The use of the term absolutely skyrockets in the 1970s. And even more surprising then, it skyrockets again in the 1980s. Hmm, interesting. Um, if you, yeah, and then if you take us to the end of the 20th century, the use of the term working class continues to be much more common and important and central than even in the 1930s, which is not what we would be led to believe sure. by um, 
by the current scholarship or uh, political understandings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit more in depth about, uh, I'm sorry, before we talk a little bit more about your findings um, in depth, let's talk about your research and approach. Um, You had sort of just very briefly mentioned this a minute ago that you're looking at print media um, by and large. So, um, but first of all, what, what motivated the research and what is the scope then chronologically speaking? Are you going from the 30s all the way to the present, or you know, what date range are you really, really narrowing in on? Right. Thank you. Um, yeah, what motivated the research? The research started as what I thought would be a five-minute dip oh. into the New York Times <laughs> isn't that historical. Always a, isn't that always how it happens? Yes. You know, you think, I'm just going to confirm yeah. with this, you know, two-minute dip, um, something I think is true, everybody else believes is true, but I have an idea about how I might just confirm that for myself. And so mm-hmm. I'm going to go and just uh, uh, um, bolster my own current understanding of something. Okay, mm-hmm. so I thought I'm going to dip into the New York Times historical, which is the digitized version of the New York Times. Mm-hmm. I'm going to search the term working class from the 30s to the 80s. And I wanted to do that because I was um, working on a project in which I, I was distinguishing what I called New Deal progressivism from Cold War liberalism. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I wanted to say, and I thought I had great uh, reason to say, was that one of the differences between New Deal progressivism and Cold War liberalism was that class disappeared as one of the categories of analysis for mm-hmm. Cold War liberals. That cl- I, What I wanted to be able to say was that class became unspeakable mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the context of the anti-communist crusade and Cold War politics. So, I, yeah, I thought, oh, and an easy way to to make sure that's true, that I can say that, is to just feed the term working class into the New York Times historical, put my dates in as 1930 to 1990, and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And so it began, that's how it began. And, it be, and the, the, the dates, the reason I have the 30s through the 80s is because I was interested in the change from New Deal um, politics through the through Cold War politics, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I thought I might see some variation in the period after nineteen after nineteen fifty, but I you know I thought that mostly um, the term working class would um, rarely appear. Sure, but of course it's not exactly what I found. I right. found something mm-hmm. entirely different, mm-hmm. and then that set me off in this much longer this much longer research pro- project. So. How are you going about this? Um, are you how are you sort of getting at, if you want to talk about it the, in this way, the the career of the term working class in U.S. politics over this date range from the 30s to the 80s? Are you taking a a, qual- a qualitative approach, a quantitative approach, a combination of the two? Um, now that it's this much broader and sort of bigger bigger thing that you're working on. Yeah, it's definitely a combination of the two. So what I have done so far, and I'm yeah, you know, I'm still at the Two years in, I'm very much still at the beginning of this pro- of this process. It's turned out to be so interesting to me and so full of surprises. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I've done so far is to do uh, the quantitative work. So right. I have I've looked at the New York Times historical and just the way I, I mentioned, but then I've also looked at other um, other newspapers like the Wall Street Journal, the L.A. Times, the New- the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune mm-hmm. to kind of get a broader vision there. I've looked at the Black Press, and I've looked at um, just the numbers, this is just numbers, mm-hmm. for uh, magazines. So I've okay. used the, the reader's the periodical guide to, to, um, to magazines. Mm-hmm. And all of them confirm the this same, this same pattern, mm-hmm. that 
you know, the, the, that the term is widely used, commonly, not widely is too strong, but it's commonly used in the, in the 1930s. It pretty much drops out of use in the 40s and 50s. It begins to come back in the 60s and then just explodes um, and doesn't stop exploding in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So the, the um, quantitative work is, thanks to digitization, so easy. It's just fantastic. Right. Um, but of course, I don't didn't know what any of these numbers really meant until I went back and started actually reading. And so mm-hmm. right now, the only qualitative work I've done is in the New York Times itself. And I chose to start with the New York Times because it was the most uh, widely distributed uh, daily newspaper mm-hmm. uh, through this period. And mm-hmm. so more people were reading it and, uh, than any other. And it's sort of uh, the the paper of record for uh, for the U.S. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting. And so what I've done is I have gone um, to and read the articles that use the term working class in the New York Times during almost all presidential election years from 32 to 88 mm-hmm. um, and years of great big strikes or strike waves. Okay. So I've looked at 32 and 34, you know, 32 because it was a, a presidential election year, 34 mm-hmm. because it was a, a year of a great strike wave. Sure. Um, I've looked at 46, the great strike wave. Uh, greatest uh, strike wave in all of U.S. history. I've looked at the the 1959, the year of the Great Steel mm-hmm, Strike, mm-hmm. Um, and 74, a period of you know wildcat strikes. In addition to the presidential election years. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more then about what you're finding from this research. Um, can you first of all sort of walk us through decade by decade by decade how working class is being used in political discourse? Yeah, I love this. Um, so the 19th, so I'll just start with the 1930s. Sure. The, the, for me, the big surprise in the 1930s was that is that um, the term, while commonly used in the New York Times, is reported in the New York Times very easily and um, without any hesitation, but it's attributed almost exclusively to academics and politicians and activists genuinely on the left. Okay. So it's coming out of the, it's reported to be coming out of the mouths of um, candidates running on the Socialist Party ticket, mm-hmm. on the Communist Party ticket, to people who are working in the Workers' Alliance or the um, International Labor Defense or the Unemployed Councils, you know, groups that are connected to, in some way, to the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. What I had expected to find was that in the 1930s, because of the Popular Front and because of the centrality of class politics in the Democratic Party, I'd expected to find working class tripping off the tongue of every politician and every reporter. Sure. And so instead, what I found was it's actually very closely associated with the left. And so the reason that working class was so much more common in the 1930s than the the um, successive decades is not because the term was accepted by Democrats and Republicans, it was because the left was so much more central to U.S. politics. Okay, that's really interesting. That, yeah, it's just really interesting to me. So um, another one of the findings was, and I find this so interesting, um, in the 30s through the 60s, so if we take that whole set of decades, 30s through the 60s, um, the majority of references to the working class in the New York Times are references to the working class in some other country than the U.S. Okay. Okay, so it's it's um, we're mostly talking about about the Soviet Union or China or Latin America or Europe, mm-hmm. not about the U.S. Mm-hmm. in those decades. So I had to disaggregate the references to the working class in the U.S. from those that are referring to someplace else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we hit 1972, in 1972, 
the the working class the term working class is used as frequently to refer to the U.S. as any place else in the in the world, and that continues through the '80s. So the way I read that, um, and I could see arguments against this, but I, the way I'm reading that right now is to say that between '68 and '72, an understanding of the U.S. as exceptional, mm-hmm. as a class of society, took mm-hmm. a huge hit. Mm. And it did not recover. That aspect of American exceptionalism did not recover uh, through the 1980s. And of course, I haven't looked past the 1980s, so I don't know what happens later. But what's so surprising to me about that is that, you know, in the age of Reagan in the 1980s, it seems like a commitment to and belief in American exceptionalism, you know, came back with a real with real power. Mm-hmm. But it seems to have come back at a time you know, simultaneous with a pretty wide acceptance that the U.S. was a class-ridden society, just like Europe. That's really interesting. And, you know, when you sort of think of the broad scope of everything else that's going on at this time, you know, you have the late war on poverty, you have um, beginnings of deindustrialization and the, you know, what is now the Rust Belt and all of those sorts of things. I mean, in some ways that that sort of makes sense um, that you would see it at, you know, on one level, the United States is being touted as completely exceptional again and, you know, winning the Cold War and all of those sorts of things. But then you also have this kind of creeping talking of, of class and class discontent and all of those sorts of things that that we hadn't seen for a while that's really interesting yeah um so what are the what are the sort of moments of continuity and fluctuation over these decades and in how working classes is being used um and how do you explain those Right. One of the continuities, again, I just find this so surprising. I'm still not quite over this. Um, it, one of the continuities is that the term working class is very rarely used in the context of a strike. Okay. You know, like seem like this is – I naively thought that you know, here is you know, a, a moment when it, there is so obviously class conflict, mm-hmm. surely in 46 and 34 and 59 mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. 74, you're going to see the use of the term working class – in the context of these strikes. No, you do not. In fact, it looks like um, the reporters who were reporting on those strikes and the politicians who were talking about those strikes assiduously avoided the term working class in the context of a strike. Right, right. It's sort so of like this isn't actually working class. This is something else, right? right this is some sort of you know, crazy sort of you know, right. you know, part of it that, that isn't really working class. Yes. Isn't that interesting? That's very interesting. So, um, and this goes to another really important part, I think, a very important uh, finding, which is that um, the opponents of the working class or the threats to working class well-being are not represented as generally across this, these, all these decades, not represented as employers, corporate interests, or capitalists. Mm-hmm. The enemies are a whole variety, or the the opponents of working class well-being are represented as a whole slew of different different things, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. But it's consistently not employers, corporate interests, capitalists, um, and which I, I the this kind of what seems like an aversion to mentioning working class or using that term in the context of a strike. That's a part of this larger this larger trend. Mm-hmm. So interesting to me, and I think that that's going to help explain how we could have both greater and greater attention to the working class and an admission that the U.S. does have a working class and class division at the same time that the working class is actually um, declining, that mm-hmm. its well-being is, is, um, is declining rather than increasing. So, um, so that's another – so 
that's another one of the uh, con continuities. The changes are really interesting. I mean, one of the big changes, of course, comes in the, the 1950s when the use of the term working class in reference to the U.S. almost disappears. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just a handful of references to the working class um, in the U.S. in the 19 in 1952, 1956, even in 1959 during the big steel strike, um, and the times that the that the term is evoked in reference to the U.S., it is almost always attributed to Communist Party members who are on trial for conspiracy to overthrow the U.S. government. Oh, okay. So it seems to me that the term not only drops out, it is actually culturally criminalized in the 1950s, mm -hmm. in the context of the anti-communist crusade. But then it, the term begins to creep back into um, to usage in the 1960s. And in part, that's some, for a reason you would expect, which is that there's a slight abatement of the anti-communist crusade. Mm -hmm. And you can see the left re-emerging into the New York Times, mm -hmm. into the representations of, of U.S. politics. So mm -hmm. the Communist Party gets some attention in the 1960s. There are leftists who actually write for the New York Times, people like Herbert Marcuse, Andrew Kopkind, um, Raymond Aron. They actually write for the, for the uh, Times. The Times reporters actually um, interview people on the left. Um, and those people use the term working class. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, for, so that makes perfect sense, and you might expect that. But a much a disturbing context in which working class begins to reemerge in the 1960s is in the context of racist politics. Mm, mm -hmm. And one of the things I'm really wrestling with, and I think it's so important uh, to have figured out, is that in the 1960s, the term working class is evoked by politicians and especially journalists who seem to want to identify as specifically as possible the group of white Americans who oppose African-American advancement. Hmm. They're opposing mm -hmm. the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And so, they, so the term working class is applied to people who would in many other contexts be called middle class. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they're called working class suddenly in the 60s. And it, so it looks like an attempt to other or to mm -hmm. distance um, those racist white people from the rest of white people who presumably were not racist. Mm -hmm. right? okay. It's a way of, of, I think, vilifying and othering mm -hmm. white racists and trying to locate racism in as small a group as humanly possible and not to identify it with the broad sweep of mm -hmm. American society. Mm -hmm. So if you called, if you identified those racists as middle class, you'd be indicting the whole of American society. Sure. sure. Right? So there's, it does seem like there's this attempt um, to contain, would be a good word, I think, contain racism in mm -hmm. U.S. society, or mm -hmm. our understanding of where it existed. Mm -hmm. And that use of the term continues through the 70s, 80s, and into our current election cycle. Sure, sure. Um, so that is a, is a really interesting and very disturbing, I think, uh, uh, change in the 1960s. Then in the 70s, that usage absolutely continues, but it is overwhelmed uh, much of the time in the 70s and parts of the 80s by an additional use of the term, which is to identify those who are beleaguered uh, by first stagflation, you know, mm -hmm. that terrible mm -hmm. um, combination of unemployment and inflation in the early 1970s, the people who are really just devastated by that combination 
are often called working class. Mm -hmm. And that continues in the 1980s, in the early 1980s. You know, there's a t inflation is just god-awful. Unemployment is a terrible threat. And the people who are most um, hurt by, the, by those uncaused economic trends, mm -hmm. as they are represented at, at these moments, um, are, are called working class. Um, and that, as I say, that continues in the, in the 70s and 80s. So you have these two uses in the 70s and 80s, one to kind of to identify as specifically as possible white racists, and, and at the same time, it's used more, much more broadly to identify people who are devastated by um, economic trends of the 70s and 80s. So um, what I'm sort of taking away from what you're saying is that the the people are using working class um, sort of in the in the political discourse over these decades, um, and it's it's a term that is the term itself is stagnant, but sort of the meanings have changed over time. Is that is that right to say? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So many scholars seem to assume that if the U.S. recognized that it had a working class, um, you know, sort of especially in this moment when you're talking about that there was silence about a U.S. working class, that workers might have been more empowered and their standards of living would have been improved um, considerably. But your research throws that assumption into question. Is that right? It does. Okay. And so what, to what extent between the 30s and the 80s, has the use of the term correlated with the political power and economic well-being of those who are assumed to be members of the working class? Right. So it, it does not correlate. Okay. okay. What, you know, the thing is so interesting is just the opposite. And uh -huh. again, I found this very surprising um, that it looked to me like in this period, uh, Americans are much more comfortable using the term working class in these these uh, kind of mainstream conversations, using that term when the working class is, is devastated, mm -hmm. when it's down on its luck, when it has no power and is not a threat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So if the term is exploding in usage in the 70s and 80s, it is exploding in, the, in usage in the context of, just as you pointed out earlier, deindustrialization, deunionization, mm -hmm. um, and the devastation, the de declining living standards uh, for the working class in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So it looks to me like, um, on the one hand, Class division, class differences, maybe that would be the better term. Mm -hmm. Class differences seem more, much more obvious in the context of deindustrialization and deunionization because the, the um, economic distance between workers and, say, managers and professionals gets bigger. Mm -hmm. you know, so it's clearer that the prospects for the people in the working class, is that their prospects are different from those um, in a managerial or professional class. So in that way, it makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. But it is also the case that under those conditions, the working class is no threat. Mm -hmm. And so to use the language of class is not scary. Okay. Right. And it's not going to sort of overturn the, the status quo in some Absolutely way, right? no mm -hmm. threat to the status quo. Right. And so one of the things that I'm taking from this... Uh, this research at this point, you know, it, and I'm trying to look, it was like, how can that be true? I mean, I've been one of the people who thought <laughs> that if you just admitted you had a working class, mm -hmm, that you mm -hmm. had a class of people who had unique interests that needed to be satisfied, mm -hmm. you know, that that would be half the distance toward improving the living standards and empowering uh, workers. Sure. But that, my research suggests that's absolutely not true. Um, that and now I think it, identifying more accurately and effectively 
the opponents of working class interests and who are the real threats to working class interests, that's every bit as important as just using the term and admitting you've got a working class in mm-hmm. U.S. society. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's not just it's not just we have this, but this these are the interests that are working against it and really sort of looking at those as a whole. So maybe we could move forward just a bit to now, um, because, as you know, as you had mentioned earlier, it really seems that especially in the context of the current election cycle, that when terms like working class and middle class are used, we're almost using them in sort of the negative. And what I mean by that is working class is almost de facto assumed to be a a disgruntled or a downtrodden or a a disenfranchised group. And then you have, to a certain degree as well, and I think increasingly in in this election cycle, middle class also being used in a negative as it's a shrunken, decimated group of people. And policies that are being positioned are those that are going to, you know, quote unquote, bring back the middle class. You know, how do we bring back the middle class? How do we sort of revive the middle class? Those sorts of things. So if you could, you know, and, and it's hard to do this as a, as a historian, but looking at, at today, do your findings shed any light on the use of working class in the, the mainstream political dialogue today? Yeah, I think it. I think it really does. On the one hand, so one of the things that it helps me understand, I mean, is that I see um, the con- consistent attempts to identify supporters, racist supporters of Donald Trump, mm-hmm. um, to uh, identify them as working class. Mm-hmm. I now see that as a part of this long trend that began in the 1960s, right. mm-hmm. and I see it as having exactly the same effect as in the 1960s and all through these, these earlier decades, which is to, and I'm not sure that this is anybody's intent, by the way, but I do think it is a dangerous effect mm-hmm. of using working class to refer to racist um, white people, that that by doing that and locating racism apparently exclusively within the working class at this moment is especially dangerous because that class is also represented as dying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it makes it seem as though, oh, well, great. If racism is um, exclusive to this dying group, then it's going to die out of its own accord. And we, nobody else has to do any work to overcome racism in American society mm-hmm. and, and the economy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's going to just na- die a natural death. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that... Um, we need to be on guard against that. I think that there is a, that's a really dangerous effect of this uh, particular usage. I also think um, that in this election cycle, either also continues to be the use of the term uh, the way it has been used since the 1970s, which is to refer to people who are beleaguered by deindustrialization and deunionization. And in that case, they're represented as pitiful, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, vile and pitiful. These Mm -hmm. are the two uses. And these uses of the term are of no benefit (laughs) to the working class. Right. Right. There's no way that these uses of the term are ever going to... um, uh, empower workers or improve their standards of living. So not being satisfied that working class is just in the conversation is one of the messages, you know, mm-hmm. of, right. of this research. Right. But at the same time, I do think that in this election cycle, there have been some pretty significant breaks with the past. And I haven't done any, I haven't done this work systematically, but I'm very eager to. Um, because Bernie Sanders has brought to the conversation a use of the term working class that is much more consistent with its use in the 1930s mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and is, I do think, 
that usage does have the potential to uh, draw attention to the unique interests of workers and um, in a way that could empower workers and improve their standards of living. So mm-hmm. I do mm-hmm. think there has been a break. And I think right now, as I'm reading, you know, just read the, the Washington Post or the New York Times now, I see comp- these very um, widely competing uses of the term. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I do think there's some, there's some hope in the conversation right now that there really hasn't been in the use of that term since since the 1960s. Right. And, and it almost seems as if there's sort of a, a competition going on between, quote unquote, working class that people are identifying with industrial workers or former industrial workers or those wow. who would be industrial workers, right, right? If, if our economy was somehow magically different versus a kind of broader conception of class and working class to um, you know, everyone that works in wage labor, in the service sector, adjunct professors, you know, in sort of a, a broader Absolutely. gamut of what it means to be working class. And I th- mm-hmm. yeah, no, go ahead, please. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And one of the things I'd like to point out there is that that larger vision of who's in the working class is something that those of us who believe that uh, that broader working class actually exists and does have interests in common that we have to really work to keep in the mm-hmm. in the conversation mm-hmm. because this has happened before and then gotten completely wiped out. So that there was, for instance, in the 1960s um, and in the early 1970s, there was within the New York Times, so this kind of ma- to- totally mainstream um, uh, uh, publication, there were uh, representations of people talking about the working class as including white collar workers, mm-hmm. salaried workers. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, in the, the early 60s, there was a report that the New York Times um, analyzed at some length that came out of the Machinists mm-hmm. uh, Association. The machinists were saying actually blue collar workers are no longer the um, the majority of the working class. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's, this is 64. Mm-hmm. 64. Mm-hmm. And of course, Marcuse in the late 1960s is in the New York Times saying, ooh, the working class is not right now revolutionary, but it includes students and it includes white collar workers and professionals. And so there's, there's actually, um, talk in this mainstream publication in the 1960s through the whole decade about this very broad working class. Mm -hmm. But of course that, that got shut down Mm -hmm. that, that wider definition. So I see that precisely what you're seeing now as a kind of renewal of that attempt to broaden the conception of the working class. But mm-hmm. I also feel like it's fragile. Right. And mm-hmm. that we need anybody who believes in that larger class needs to stay on it. Sure. Right. <laughs> right. Once in the culture doesn't mean it's going to um, remain there or have the positive effects that we'd like to see it have. Right. And I think that, you know, you've you've just sort of set us on our task here as we, you know, as we wrap up the episode. So Robin Muncy, um, thank you very much for sharing your initial research for with us. And we'll be looking forward to seeing Seeing what comes of it. And uh, thanks for joining us on this episode of Working History. It was just a pleasure. Thank you so much, Beth. Thanks again to Robin Muncie, professor of history at the University of Maryland. Her current research focuses on the history of the term working class in U.S. political culture. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History. <music> <laughs>